Thanks for listening to the Three Strands podcast. For more information about our church and our ministries, visit us at threestrands.church. I'm excited to start this new series today called Deceiver. Anybody ever feel like they've had the wool pulled over their eyes by somebody like real bad at some point in their life? They just betrayed, deceived, tricked, swindled, you know? You hear stories of people who like lose all their retirement money investing with somebody who's really a scam artist or um, somebody that you thought you knew so well seems to stab you in the back and treat you in an awful way and just hurts, you know, it hurts. And um, what I've learned in my years as a Christian is that the devil is so tricky and so deceitful, a lot of times I don't even know that's who I'm fighting. And uh, this is going to blow your mind. If you're here and you're a Christian, or you say you're a Christian, this blew my mind when I read this this week, but in America, over 90% of the people believe that there's a God. That's pretty good. I mean, if you listen to some atheist talk, they'd have you believe half the country doesn't believe there's a God, but the statistics kind of bear out somewhere between about 90 and 93% of Americans believe that there's an all-powerful deity um, that they'll have to answer to one day or that rules over the universe, a God. But of those 90 to 93% of Christians who claim to be Christian or claim to believe that there's a God in this country, 60% of them don't believe there's a Satan. Isn't that interesting? They don't believe there's a devil. A lot of them think that the devil in the Bible is just a representation of an evil force that's in the universe that they're fighting against, or an inner battle that they have to deal with on a daily basis, a, a, an internal struggle, a metaphor for what they're going through in life. And so what that means is that we got all these people running around who say, I'm a Christian, I believe in Jesus, I believe there's a God, but they don't believe there's an enemy. They don't believe there's a real devil fighting to ruin your life. They don't even know they're in a battle. When they're battling something, they don't even know it's the devil they're battling. But the Bible's pretty clear. There is no metaphorical Satan in the Bible. There is no figment of our imagination. There is no just evil force driving throughout the universe. Some people have obviously watched just like too much Star Wars in their life. But the Bible is pretty clear that the devil is a real being, a real person. And we're engaged, if you're a Christian, you're engaged in a battle with him every day. I want to read you probably the most you know, recognizable or famous passage in the Bible that people go to when discussing spiritual warfare or the devil. It's in Ephesians chapter 6. The verses will be on the screen, but if you want to look it up, you can... Follow along with us. Ephesians chapter 6, starting in verse 10. This is what it says. A final word, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on all of God's armor so that you will be able to stand firm, stand firm against all the strategies of the devil. For we are not fighting against flesh and blood enemies, but against evil rulers and authorities of the unseen world against mighty powers in this dark world and against evil spirits in the heavenly places. Therefore, put on 
every piece of God's armor so you will be able to resist, to resist the enemy in the time of evil. Then after the battle, you will still be standing firm. It goes on to describe what this armor looks like. If you ever read down through the rest of Ephesians chapter 6, and we've covered this a couple years back in our church, but it'll describe what all that armor looks like, all the things you're supposed to do from day to day, or all the pieces of God's Word, or all the instructions from God to protect yourself in a spiritual battle. I'm not going to teach back through that today, but I just wanted to share that paragraph with you again, tell you that's an important paragraph to keep in your mind. And so what I've done for you is I'm going to memorize that paragraph over the series, and I want to invite you to join me with it. And so on the back table, you find these little cards on your way out. The first couple phrases from that paragraph are on this card. If you'll grab one of those cards on your way out, memorize it this week. And each week of the series, we'll all together memorize a piece of this passage, this paragraph I just read you. And, uh, and by the end of it, you'll have it committed to memory. And it's important because it's kind of God's initial instructions on how do you do battle against the devil or how do you resist or stand firm or stand strong or fight back against spiritual enemies, against the people who are really battling you every day. I asked our life group on Wednesday if they think there's people in this world that are deceived by the devil, and everybody agreed that there was. And then I asked them if they think that they themselves get deceived by the devil, devil and, and kind of more, a little bit more begrudgingly, but they all kind of agreed, yes, that they do. You know, at least at some time in our lives. And all of us do. That's the reality, right? All of us are deceived by the devil. And today is the morning where I want you to feel like we can finally fight back. And stop just taking body blows and stop letting them like beat you down. But instead, like do battle God's way. See victory in your life. And kind of get some real information that you can use in your daily life. So we're all in this battle. It's literally a battle for our soul. And the devil, the enemy, is experienced, he's ruthless, he's relentless. He wants you, and he wants to wreck your life. And so most people, maybe in our church, are kind of like, okay, I'll buy into it. Even if before I got here, I didn't really believe there was a devil. If you're saying there is for right now, I'll buy into it. And so I think there's a lot of Christians who don't buy into it. But even if we do buy into it, we kind of get this picture in our heads of what the devil looks like. And it's not really what he looks like. So I brought a couple of examples. Here's one. This is what people see, like when you say the devil, it's some character that's got like a couple pointy horns on his head, a pointy tail, carries around a pitchfork, is red. And for some reason, whether he's on unemployment and just doesn't have the money he used to have or COVID hit and he hasn't been able to work, for some reason, the devil's always pictured in like kind of inappropriate clothing, like he doesn't have enough money to buy a full suit or something. So he's wearing like some kind of Swedish bathing suit or, I don't know, a loincloth. I don't know why that is, but in other words. So see, and then there's this, some people get this picture, he's a little bit more grown up, maybe a little angrier, not quite as happy. But he still, as you can see, is red, has a pointy tail, horns on his head, and carries around a pitchfork for some reason. And then somewhere along the lines, I don't know if it was Apple or who developed it, hey, the devil probably shouldn't be red anymore, let's make him purple. And they put it on all of your phones, and now it's like it kind of represents like I want to be mischievous or up to something. So like I send that, I'm like, yeah, I'm getting going to get away with something. And you text it to a friend, you know, or like I got bad intentions. And so now the devil's purple. I don't know why, 
You know, everything I could read on it this week was like back in the Middle Ages, they started doing these plays and they wanted to have characters from the Bible and the devil was one of those characters. And so they started painting the actors red to kind of make them stand out from the other characters in the play. But for whatever reason, we've decided the devil's supposed to be red, not in the Bible. We've decided he's supposed to have horns and a pointy tail, not in the Bible. We've decided he like used to be on hee-haw, so he carries around a, pitch, a pitchfork all the time. Not in the Bible. And we've decided for some reason he's always like inappropriately dressed. I don't know why not in the Bible. He's also not purple. He's also not just a floating face that you text in your phone. He's none of those things. The Bible describes him in some detail, though. I'm not going to look at all those passages with you in this short series. But he's described as beautiful, cunning, full of intelligence and wisdom. He used to be the worship band leader in heaven, which I think we all know really is not that big of a leap, right? From worship band leader to devil, okay? So we'll edit that out later. So that's what the devil's like in the Bible, right? Beautiful, cunning, intelligent, musically gifted, had a serving role in heaven, one of God's angels. And so it's a very different picture than we would get of him all the time. But I want us to kind of shift the way we think of him as not some guy that shows up in our closet at night while we're sleeping to scare us, but instead this enemy that is being deceitful behind the scenes. And you don't even realize you're fighting against him. It comes at you, and before you even know what happened, he's tricked you. And I think if I ask people in the room, say, hey, how has the devil tricked you in your life? Or how do you think the devil deceives people? You get a lot of different answers. You might get hundreds of answers. But I want to focus you in on only three in this series. Because really, the devil only deceives you three ways. You don't have to give him more credit than he deserves. You don't have to think that he's this uh, uh, master trickster that, that uh, you'll never be able to figure out all of his approaches or all of his techniques or all of his strategies to get you down. He really comes at you one of three ways. We're going to cover one each week for the next three weeks, kind of see how the devil attacks us, how he tries to deceive us, and then God's going to give us a plan for how to combat that deception. I'll, I'll give you an example of somebody from the Bible in each week that kind of the devil tried to deceive this way or that way, and then we'll look at God's answers for it. I don't know if you noticed it in those verses I read, but there's nothing in there about us being afraid of the devil. You don't have to be afraid of the devil. He isn't God. He isn't all-powerful. He isn't omnipresent. He can't be everywhere at the same time. He isn't all-knowing. He's a created being just like we are. In fact, if you're a Christian, if you're a follower of Jesus, the Bible, Jesus said in Luke chapter 10, you don't have to be afraid of him, but on top of that, he actually has to obey you. You have authority over demons and the devil. But Jesus has given you that. If you will live in Jesus' name, if you will live according to God's will for your life, the devil has to obey you. So we don't need to be afraid of him. He can't take up residence inside of a, a true believer, inside of somebody who's following Jesus. Why? Because the Holy Spirit lives inside of us. And there's no vacancy in my heart. The devil can't move in, live next door to the Holy Spirit. It doesn't work like that. So I don't have to be afraid of him. I don't have to bow to him. I don't have to do what he tells me to do. I don't have to give in to his deception. 
No, I can stand firm. I can be strong. I can take courage. I don't know if you caught any of those words in that Ephesians 6 passage, but as you read down through the rest of the passage that I didn't read, you get even more of those words. And in fact, every passage we're going to look at in these three weeks has these words littered amongst it. Words like, stay alert, watch out, stand firm, be strong, stand your ground, pray at all times, be on guard. So what are all these passages going to have in common? I'm going to give it to you today. They're all going to have one thing in common. Here it is. You ready? They're all crying out to us, be ready. Be ready. In other words, wake up. Like if you don't think the devil's real, or you don't think he's out to get you, or you don't think he's trying to attack you every day, you've already lost. Be ready. Wake up. Stand firm. Be strong. Pray all the time. Stand your ground. Watch out. Stay alert. Be ready. And if you'll be ready the way God says to be ready, then you'll have victory over the devil every time. Sometimes we have to discipline our kids. And I'll say to them, I'll be like, I hate disciplining you. I don't like it. You don't ever have to get in trouble again the rest of your life. You don't ever have to be disciplined the rest of your life. All you have to do is just obey. And if you obey every time, you'll never get in trouble ever again. I feel like God says that same thing to me. You don't ever have to lose the battle. You don't ever have to be defeated by the devil. You don't ever have to feel beaten down. If you'll just obey every time, you'll never experience defeat. And so that's what God is saying to us today. And I kind of took those words in my head this week that are in all these passages, the be strong and stand your ground and stand firm, watch out and stay alert, all these, all these phrases from these passages. And I kind of put those up in my head against the way we tend to interact with the devil, which is opposite. We tend to run and hide. We tend to give in. We tend to expose our vulnerabilities. We tend to surrender. You say, I don't even know what you're talking about. I don't ever remember surrendering to the devil, but here's how some of that plays out. It's like the devil's attacking us. Temptation is great. Deception is in our minds. We can't figure out what to do. And when he's attacking us and we don't even know it's him, what do we do? We run and hide. Run and hide looks like we avoid every Christian we know. Because they make us feel something we don't want to feel in that moment. We expose our vulnerabilities. What do I mean? I mean, we go to the very places that the devil's trying to use to destroy us. We surround ourselves with the very people he's trying to tempt us into messing up our life with. We buy the very things that are actually going to wreck us. We expose our vulnerabilities instead of protecting ourselves from them. We give up. We quit. I don't understand this. It's not working out. I just quit. I tried God. It didn't work. I've read my Bible. I don't understand it. I've been trying to be better, and I just can't do it. I just can't seem to kick this habit. I just can't seem to overcome this feeling. I just can't seem to resist this passion. So we quit, and then we just do whatever we want. Stop doing it God's way. The devil doesn't have that kind of power over us unless we give it to him. 
But he does have some power. There are some things the Bible says the devil can do. Here's what he can do. You ready? He can communicate to you. He has the ability to kind of whisper thoughts in your ear. He has the ability to to bring certain stimuli or certain circumstances into your life for the purposes of you failing, for the purposes of your destruction. Now, he can't do any of that without God's permission. The Bible teaches us that. And, And this might sound a little unfair to you, but just hang with me for a few minutes. God lets him. God lets him mess with you. God lets him whisper stuff into your ears. He lets him bombard your heart with feelings. He lets him make things in your life go bad. And the devil's doing it to destroy you, and God is hoping you'll obey him and see victory. But he allows it. And so the devil's got this freedom to communicate. But everything he says is a deception. It's all a lie. It's a scheme or a strategy meant to drag you down into the gutter with him. You ever see this sign on the road, this wrong way sign? Anybody ever see that? Anybody ever drive down one of those? You know you have. Drive down one of those uh, ignorantly. You didn't know you were doing it, I'm sure. Right? The wrong way. I started thinking about the wrong way sign. Uh, there's not a whole lot of those in this county, is there? I don't think there's a whole lot of like one-way roads around here, is there? So there's some in Somerset, right? Some in Somerset, maybe? Yeah. yeah. Oh, the parkway, is that what you said? The parkway? Yeah, you don't want to be going the wrong way on the parkway. Because the three cars that are on there with you aren't going <laughs> to, they're not going to get out of your way. Oh, man. Uh, the wrong way. So I started thinking about that this week. And I thought, I think Christians tend to think that the wrong way sign is what the devil's using. And then like we like defy God and we go down the wrong way anyhow. It's kind of like this next picture here. Like we come to a T in the road. You ever seen something like this? And it's like, you know, life is this way. And destruction is that way. And we're like sitting there looking at the Bible or the roadmap. We're like, let me see here. Life or destruction? I think I'll take destruction. That doesn't happen. That's what we think is happening. But that isn't really what's happening. I don't really think the way the devil beats you or beats me is that we come to these T's in the road or these decision points in our lives, these crossroads. And we're faced with two choices. And one says, hey, Choice A, it's God's way, the way to everlasting life, the way to happiness and fulfillment. And the other way is like the way to certain doom, doom, doom. doom. I don't think it's like that, right? But that's what we think it's like. I think what really happens is you come to a T in the road, and there's two signs there, and they're pointing in the opposite direction, and they both say life. And you're like, what do I do? Which way do I go? The devil doesn't come at you. The devil doesn't come at you and say a good thing for you. He hides it. He disguises it. He deceives you. He's trickier than that. He's not trying to whisper in your ear, hey, disobey God. Do all the wrong things. Wreck your life. He's not saying that. No, he's saying things like he said in the Bible. Things like, oh, if you do it the other way, it won't wreck your life. If you do it opposite of how God's telling you to do it, it won't work out any different. They'll both lead you to the same spot. 
All roads lead to happiness, don't they? All roads lead to heaven. Everybody's getting it. And we have a world. We have a world full of people that believe we're all getting to heaven. We definitely have a country like that. I don't know if there is a heaven, but if there is, we're probably all getting in. I mean, except the serial killers. And then they list off like two or three things that they think are worse than them that aren't going to make it into heaven because that somehow makes them feel better about themselves. Well, we're all getting into heaven except for the Hitlers of the world. I don't know where we got that out of the Bible either, that there's like this grace line where some people are more sinful than other people. And I'm always, and somehow I'm always on the less sinful side of that equation. Because when you're sizing up yourself, you're always like, yeah, I guess I'm not so bad. I can always think of somebody worse than myself. And so the devil is deceiving you with the choice. You're looking at what seems to be two good choices to pick from. So how do you know? I'm going to share with you the three ways he deceives you or tries to deceive you. We'll look at some examples of it and we'll pick it apart. Let me show you the first one. It's in 1 Peter chapter 5. 1 Peter chapter 5. Keep in mind, he is a deceiver, so there's some lies built into the way he acts here. But 1 Peter chapter 5, starting in verse 8, here's some of these words again. You ready? Stay alert. Watch out. That's code, right? For be ready. Everybody got, everybody's got that, right? Be ready. For your great enemy, the devil, he prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Here's another one of those words. Stand firm against him and be strong in your faith. Remember that your family of believers all over the world is going through the same kind of suffering you are. In his kindness, God called you to share in his eternal glory by means of Christ Jesus. So after you have suffered a little while, he will restore, support, and strengthen you. And he will place you on a firm foundation. All power to him forever. Amen. Amen. Just so be it. As God has said it, so be it in my life. God has declared it. I embrace it. Let it be so for my life. Amen. Right? So here's the first attack of the devil. The first way he tries to deceive. I called it a roaring lion. Right? A roaring lion. That's week one. A roaring lion. Comes at you like a roaring lion. Now you're already confused because you're like, I haven't seen a lion since I've been at the zoo. What are you talking about? Okay, stick with me for a second. I want to just point out a couple of things about why Peter's using this language, right? So Peter says, be on guard, be ready. The devil's hunting you down, looking for you. He wants to devour you. He's prowling around like a roaring lion. And the audience that Peter's talking to is most likely filled with Jews and Gentiles scattered all over the Roman Empire. Peter writes this letter sometime in the A.D. 60s. And the emperor of Rome at that time is Emperor Nero, considered by almost every historian to be the most violent, most oppressive Roman emperor there was. And he had a special hatred for Christians. Now, they weren't called Christians yet at that point. But he had this special hatred for them, a small group of believers that followed Jesus that he didn't even know who Jesus was. And he hated them. Just a little background on Nero. He became emperor when he was 16. Now imagine if like one of these 16-year-olds that you know was in charge of the whole world, right? Okay. 
So this is how he came to power. The emperor, two emperors before him, had exiled him and his mother to an island. Then that guy died, and the current emperor took a liking to Nero's mom, who coincidentally enough was like a cousin or something, but it just let's not even get into that. But took a liking to Nero's mom and ends up marrying her, freeing them from exile, putting Nero next in line for the throne. The mom is equally as wicked as Nero, and she poisons the emperor and kills him, leaving Nero to take the throne at the age of 16. He is so distrustful of his mom, and he's equally as vile and hate-filled as she is, that uh, uh, most historians believe he killed his mom so that she couldn't threaten his throne. He only reigned for about 18 or 19 years, so he was pretty young his whole reign, but he just absolutely hated Christians. And the stories that are recorded, in, not in the Bible, but in just secular history about Nero, are that he just looked for any opportunity he could to just kill and destroy and brutalize Christians. And he would routinely arrest Christians and throw them into the Colosseum with no weapons to fight against lions. And the crowds would sit back and cheer as lions just ripped the Christians to shreds. So the audience that Peter's writing to would understand this imagery that the devil is like a roaring lion looking to devour them. They've seen it in real life. We haven't. Maybe you haven't, I just don't know about it, but most likely we haven't. But they've seen it. Stories of Nero and how he hated Christians are like all over secular literature, how he would arrest Christians and he would literally hang them on stakes in his garden and light them on fire alive so that he could have dinner parties in his garden at night while Christians burned to death. So these people that Peter's writing to, most likely from the city of Rome, would understand what it looked like to have a lion prowling around looking to devour you. They would easily be able to relate the way the devil is to what a roaring lion wants to do to them. You see that back in verse 8? Look back at verse 8. They understand this. It's prowling around, looking for anyone to devour. And you notice in that verse, I want to point out the second thing to you, is that it doesn't actually say the devil's a lion. You get that, right? The devil's not a lion. He's a deceiver. He doesn't prowl around as a lion. He prowls around like a lion. You get that, right? There's only one lion in the Bible. The only person in the Bible that's ever compared to a lion is Jesus. He's called the Lion of Judah, the only one strong enough and worthy to open the book of life and open the scrolls at the end of time and see who has actually followed him. He comes from the tribe of Judah, and the Old Testament was called the Lion of Judah. That the Lion of Judah would be a man that came out of the tribe of Judah, would become the king of Israel, and would rule and reign for all eternity. And then in Revelation, you find out Jesus gets called the Lion of Judah, the only one eternal, the only one worthy of being having that title, the only one worthy of being an actual lion. The devil is just a pretender. He's a faker. So what is the attack of the devil in this verse? What does it mean that he prowls around like a roaring lion? Well, it's in verse 9. Can I show you verse 9 again? Did you catch it? 
Stand firm against him. Be strong in your faith. Remember that your family of believers all over the world is going through the same kind of suffering that you are. So what is this attack of the devil? It's suffering. Pain. Loss. Disease. Persecution. Depression. We don't tend to give the devil credit for all that. We tend to think like, well, that's just coming from my own heart. You know, I'm all a little messed up inside. But turns out the devil's prowling around trying to make you suffer. What's he doing when he's like a roaring lion? He's trying to, he's trying to bark loud enough. He's trying to roar at a loud enough decim, decibel that you'll quit. That you'll give up. If the suffering is great enough, he thinks you'll quit. That you'll turn on the Lord. That you'll curse him out. That you'll abandon the faith. That you'll walk away from God and conclude he doesn't work. If the suffering is great enough, if the health problem lasts long enough, if the loneliness is severe enough, I'll abandon everything God says to do and do it my own way. Suffering. Suffering. It's the approach he tried in the Bible on Job. Anybody knows the story of Job from the Old Testament? Let me just kind of summarize it. It's 50 chapters. We won't look at all of it, but let me just summarize it for you, right? Job is said to be a wealthy man, the richest man in his whole area. And he loves God. He worships God. He's a man of great integrity, and he always does the right thing, the Bible says. And one day, the devil comes to God, and God says to the devil, have you looked at my servant Job? He loves me. He does everything I tell him to do. He's a man of great integrity. And the devil says, well, of course he is. You've given him everything anybody could ever want. Why wouldn't he love you? You've made him rich. You've, gave, you've given him a happy family. You've given him servants. You've given him good health. Why wouldn't he love you and do what you say? Why wouldn't he be a man of integrity? If you didn't, if you didn't protect him, he'd turn his back on you. He'd quit. If you allowed him to experience enough suffering, he'd give up. This is Satan's deception, his approach, right? So God says, go for it. Do anything you want to him. But just don't harm him in his don't harm him physically. Anything you want to him. So the devil's like, all right, here we go. So the devil shows up, devil kills his family. All of his kids die from a tornado. All of his livestock and wealth and servants are either killed or captured by invading forces. His houses are destroyed and burned down. He's left with literally nothing. No servants. No livestock, no wealth, no kids. And yet he doesn't turn his back on God. Instead, in Job chapter 1, he says this. Job stood up and tore his outer robe in grief. Then he shaved his head and fell to the ground to worship. He said, I came naked from my mother's womb, and I will be naked when I leave. The Lord gave me what I had, and the Lord has taken it away. Praise the name of the Lord in all of this. Job did not sin by blaming God. Story doesn't end there. Devil goes back to God. And God's like, have you seen Job? He's following me. Man of integrity. Always does the right thing. Loves me. And the devil says, well, of course he loves you. I mean, you let me do all this stuff to him, but anybody would give up that stuff as long as they don't have to give up their own health. 
Anybody will do whatever it takes to protect themselves. So, of course, he loves you because he wants you to keep protecting his person. And God says, okay, go back and do whatever you want to him. Just don't kill him. And the devil's like, here we go again. So the devil goes back and he gives Job a disease. It's boils and sores all over his body. And you find Job in Job chapter 2 sitting on a pile of ashes, probably the ashes where his house burned down, sitting on a pile of ashes with a broken piece of pottery, scraping sores and boils, bleeding, I'm sure, off his skin. It's probably because they itch or hurt. Sitting there miserable. And his wife comes over to him and says, Job, what are you doing? Why don't you just curse God? Why don't you just turn your back on God? Why don't you just give up? And maybe God will kill you. At least you won't be in pain anymore. At least the suffering will end. But Job still won't. Job chapter 2, verse, verse 10. Job replies, some of you guys, you can write this one down for later. You talk like a foolish woman. I'm just kidding. Don't be calling any organizations on me or anything like that. You, you talk like a foolish woman. Should we accept only good things from the hand of God and never anything bad? So in all this, Job said nothing wrong. Am I going to give God credit for all the good stuff in my life? But when the suffering gets bad, I'm going to bail. Suffering, it's the deception of the devil, the roaring lion trying to trick you by saying things will never get better. It'll always be bad. You'll always suffer. It hurts too bad. You're too lonely. Do it the op Look, I know God says to do it that way, but you can do it this way too. They'll both work out. Do it the opposite way. What's the point? If you don't hear anything else today, if you don't understand anything else we're going to dig into, anything of the plan of how to combat this type of attack, Hear this from God today, I guess, right? This is what he was saying through the story of Job. It's what he's teaching us in 1 Peter. It's what he teaches all throughout the Bible. Adversity doesn't mean abandoned. Adversity doesn't mean abandoned. Just because you face adversity doesn't mean God has bailed on you. And it doesn't mean you should bail on him. Just because suffering lasts longer than you want it to I mean, who wants it to last long? Nobody. I was thinking this week, like, everybody wants to be courageous, don't you think? If I was like, hey, man, who wants to be courageous? I mean, nobody wants to be a coward, right? Who wants to be courageous? But you know what it takes to be courageous? It actually takes a situation that, like, threatens your life. But who wants that? You know what I mean? Like, we speak up, like, yeah, I want to be courageous. But, like, I don't, do I want a bunch of stuff to come into my life that's going to, like, threaten my existence? Threaten my kids' lives? But how else could you show courage if there's no suffering? So how do you fight back? I just want to take you back through that passage real quick. There's a three-step plan in that 1 Peter chapter 5 passage that instructs us how to fight back, how to resist the roar. Because you're going to hear the roar today or tomorrow or the next week. The roar of suffering of loneliness, of pain, of depression. You're going to hear it. Why don't you just curse God? Why don't you just bail? Why don't you just walk away? Why don't you just stay home today? Why don't you just avoid those people because they're going to just tell you what God says. Why don't you just run and hide? Why don't you just surrender? 
Why don't you just do it another way? So here's how you resist the roar. You ready? The first thing is this. You expect what's happening to you. Didn't we already cover that? Didn't we hear that in multiple passages already? Get ready. It's coming. Don't let it blindside you. Expect it to come. Expect what's happening to you because suffering is inevitable for all of us. Have you ever met the person that's never suffered? If you have, they got to be pretty young. Probably like six months or younger. And even they wail and cry, right? They think they're suffering all the time. they got a good life. They don't even know it. We all suffer. Expect what's happening. Look back at verses 8 and 9 a second. Look. Stay alert. Watch out. It's on the way. Your enemy, the devil, he prowls around like a roaring lion. It doesn't say he might prowl around every once in a while, a couple days here and there. He might be hunting for you. No, he prowls around every day. He's always looking for you. Stand firm. Be strong in your faith. Be on guard against him. Be on the lookout for him. He's coming to get you. Don't let it take you by storm. Expect it to come. So when it comes, your attitude can be like, I knew that was coming. I knew that was coming. Most of the time when people bail at this stage on God, it's like, well, I thought it wasn't going to be like this. I mean, I know, be, I know there'd still be hard things in life, but I just thought if I decided to follow Jesus that he'd make my marriage work out. I just thought if I decided to follow Jesus that I could pray and he'd get rid of this disease for me. Sometimes he will. Sometimes he won't. He won't. Am I only going to accept the good from him and not the bad? No. Expect it. And when it comes, my attitude can be like, well, I knew that was coming. <laughs> Devil. Who does he think he's tricking? I knew he was going to do that stuff. I knew he was going to roar. I knew he was going to bring suffering. I knew there was going to be pain in my life. I'm not turning my back on God because of that. I knew it was coming. Here's the second step to resist the roar. You ready? Remember what's happening around you. Expect what's happening to you, but remember what's happening around you everywhere in the world. You're not alone. Why is it that when we suffer, when we're sitting in the jail cell, when we're the one getting the diagnosis, when we're the one who's just had somebody walk out on us, why is it that when we hurt, when we have pain, we tend to think, nobody knows what I feel like. Nobody understands this pain. I'm all alone. I don't even know who I'd talk to about it. Nobody can relate to this. I'm the only one. You're not the only one going through it. Whatever it is, you're not alone. I promise. Whatever it is. And so Peter's writing this down for us. Remember what's happening around you. Look at the end of verse 9 again, right? What's he say? Remember that your family of believers all over the world is going through the exact same thing. You're not alone. This is why you have to have a family of believers around you if you're going to resist the roar. If you're going to defeat the enemy every day. It's not optional, so let me ask you. Are the people in this church that you come in and sit beside or sit around week after week, are they family or are they just part of the audience that you're part of? Because if you're going to resist the roar, you need a family of believers around you because you need to know they're going through the same thing as you. You need community. You need life group. You need dinners with Christian friends. You need inviting people over to your house to watch a movie or to go shopping with you. You need a family of believers that you can text with, that you can pray with, that you can talk to. 
so that you can always remember because you'll forget and suffering will come and you'll start to think, man, it's so bad. It's worse than anybody I've ever known has had it. I'm the only one going through this. No, you're not. Remember what's going on around you. You're not alone. Here's the third piece, the third step to resist the roar. He says, focus on what's happening ahead of you. Focus on what's happening up ahead of you. Did you see it in verse 10? Let me show it to you again. In his kindness, God called you to share in his eternal glory by means of Christ Jesus. That's code for heaven, right? God's called you to participate, to receive, to be invited into heaven, eternal life with him through Jesus Christ. So after you have suffered for a little while, after you've suffered for a little while, he'll restore you. He'll support you. He'll strengthen you. He'll place you on a firm foundation. You don't understand. You keep saying a little while. feels like I've been going through this forever. feels like I've been single forever. feels like I've been broke forever. feels like I've been hurting forever. But you got to think about it like God thinks about it. So I brought my rub. I've used this a couple of times in our church. Can you help me for a second? No, no, no. Chelsea, can you help me? I'm always asking Michael. I'm not, not asking Michael every time. Just because he sits in the front, right? All right. So this rope, I want you to use your imagination, okay? This rope, you're at the back up. Man, we need a tight rope. We got people in the back trying to see Chelsea. I mean, all right. This rope, can we hold that up? Yeah, just like that. Just like, Michael, can you jump over that? No, I'm just kidding. All right. This rope, right, represents eternity. All right, now it's not long enough. You guys, you guys get that, right? I, I couldn't actually bring you a rope that would be long enough to represent eternity, okay? Are we on the same page? Okay. This represents eternity, okay? And whatever piece of your existence happens right here on this planet is like this little red spot. See it? That's actually not even that much, but see it right here? This is it. So when we say to God, like, God, you don't understand. I've been suffering forever. And God's looking at that rope being like, forever? Forever? To me, it looks like you've been suffering a little while. After you've suffered a little while, I'm going to restore you. I'm, I'm going to give you eternal life. Glory because of Jesus. You can just set that down right there. It's okay. Everybody understand what I'm saying? No matter how long the suffering lasts, you focus on what's happening up ahead of you and you won't quit. What happens is you conclude this is all there is. It's been going on forever, but it hasn't. You hear the deception? This is what the devil's whispering in your ear. He's whispering these things over and over. Don't worry about me. I probably won't attack tomorrow. Don't be on guard. Don't, don't, don't pay attention. Don't expect anything to go wrong tomorrow. It'll probably be a good day. He's whispering in your ear, oh, you're the only one. Nobody's dealing with this same stuff. Suffering? Christians aren't supposed to suffer, are they? Or he's whispering in the other ear, he's saying, huh, don't worry about what's coming next. Look at where you are right now. Where you are right now is pretty bad, isn't it? Probably won't ever get better. I mean, hasn't it been like this forever? 
See, if he can trick you, if he can deceive you, if he can con you or use a strategy and roar loud enough in your life, he can't bite you. He's not a real lion. But if he can roar loud enough, if he can get you to suffer long enough, you'll start to think, it's the way it's always going to be. And I'm the only one going through it. You start to think like that, you are on the road to walking away from God, to giving up, to surrendering the fight, to losing the battle that day. But if you expect it to happen today, suffering is going to come. You're not going to get fed to a lion, but you could get a phone call that makes you angry. You could get the call saying somebody in your family just died in a car accident. I, I listen to Greg Laurie a lot. Greg Laurie is a pastor at Harvest Chapel in Cal, out in California, but one of the guys I like to listen to preach, and he tells a story of he had an adult son die, and his adult son died several years ago in a car accident. And I never forget listening to him tell this, give this interview, and the interview, interviewer was asking him how he felt or what it was like going through that and what he learned going through that experience. And he said, I learned an important lesson about my faith. And this was the lesson. He said, if your circumstances, if your circumstances can cause you to abandon your faith, good. Because you've had faith in the wrong thing then. And it's time to reevaluate your faith. If my faith is in the God of the universe who's in complete control, is going to make everything right one day, no matter how bad the suffering is now, it will pale in comparison to the reward of eternity. It's hard to say when you've lost a son. And I've told our church this story before, but imagine you go to the post office to buy one stamp. Stamp's 50 cents. How much a stamp is now? 50 cents? I can't remember. 50 cents. They're always changing it. 50 cents. So you go in to buy one stamp, and the guy swipes your debit card. He charges you $10 for the one stamp instead of 50 cents. You don't pay attention to it. You just grab the card, grab the receipt, go home. When you get home, you look at the receipt and you realize they overcharged you and they charged you $10 for one stamp. What do you feel right then? You feel ticked off. You feel cheated, don't you? That's on a minor scale, some suffering, but you're angry. In fact, if anybody asked you where would you go get stamps, you wouldn't tell them that post office because that post office is a bunch of dirty, rotten cheaters. So you decide, I'm going to go back. I don't appreciate what they did to me. I'm going to go back and let them have peace of my mind. You go back to the post office and you show them the receipt. And you say, I only bought one stamp. And the guy behind the counter says, you know what? I remember you being here. You're right. I'm sorry. I, I messed that up. Let me give you your money back. Make it right. Then he says, you know what, I, for your inconvenience, I don't want to just give you your money back. Let me pay you gas money too. So he pays you your $10 back for the stamp. You got the stamp for free. Now he gives you a gas card for 20 bucks. And then he says, I just feel awful about how worked up you got about it. He said, I want to just kind of make it right. So let me give you $1,000 out of my own pocket too. Now you go home with that one stamp that costs you nothing, a $20 gas card and 1000 bucks in your wallet. You still feel like the post office treated you unjust, unjustly? Or did they make it right? Did they go way above and beyond making it right? This is heaven. 
This is eternity with God. No matter how bad the abuse is now, no matter how awful the suffering, 150 years from now or 300 years from now or 3 million years from now, when you look back, it's just going to look like a little red dot at the end of your rope. And you're going to be like, I can't even believe I was complaining about that back then. Like, you've given me so much. You've, you've gone way above and beyond making any suffering right in my life. When I think that way, I won't give up. I won't quit. Because I understand the devil is just a fake. He's just deceiving me. That the truth is God is going to make it all right. And then I'm not going through it all by myself. We're all going through it together. And it gives me just what I need to keep going. So why has God let this happen? The last question I want to ask you today is just, why does God let this happen? He doesn't have to let suffering happen. Couldn't he just stop it all? Hey, you become a Christian, God eliminates suffering from your life. Wouldn't that be great? Wouldn't that be great? Let me give you the word. Here's the word. The reason that God lets this happen is because of the word grace. That doesn't make sense, but I want to read it to you, okay? The word grace. Look at verse 12. The very next verse in this passage says this. My purpose in writing is to encourage you and assure you that what you are experiencing is truly part of God's grace for you. So stand firm in this grace. That doesn't make sense. Doesn't feel like grace when the lion's coming at me in the Colosseum, does it? Doesn't feel like your grace. There's a lot of different facets to this we could get into. But it comes down to this. God's got a plan for you. Without suffering, you wouldn't even know what grace was. If everything was perfect for everyone, how would you even know God was giving you something special? If it never hurt, how would you ever know when he healed you? If it was never difficult, why would heaven be any better? Do you understand what he's saying? Your suffering is actually part of my plan because I'm using it to convince you how much I love you how much I'm rescuing you from, how much I want to be there for you, how much I want to make right and set right in the future. I'm convincing you of the truth, which is I have more grace than you could ever imagine for you. Without suffering, we'd never understand his glory. We wouldn't know how great he was. We'd just think that was the way it was. We wouldn't understand all these qualities about God. The Bible says in another passage, we don't have time to look at it today, but Without suffering, without suffering, you would never abandon sin. There were no consequences. It has all these different facets. I just want to read you a few passages from the Bible about suffering. Can I read you just a few of them to close today? Romans chapter 8. I'm going to start in verse 35. See if you don't hear these themes all throughout the Bible, New Testament, Old Testament, different authors. And see if you can relate the suffering to God's grace in our life. You ready? Can anything ever separate us from Christ's love? Does it mean he no longer loves us if we have trouble or calamity or are persecuted or hungry or are destitute or in danger or threatened with death? No, despite all these things, overwhelming victory is ours through Christ who loved us. Neither death nor life 
neither angels nor demons, neither our fears for today nor our worries about tomorrow, not even the powers of hell can separate us from God's love. No power in the sky above or in the earth below. Indeed, nothing in all creation will ever be able to separate us from the love of God that is revealed in Christ Jesus our Lord. One chapter earlier in Peter, 1 Peter chapter 4, starting in verse 1, Peter writes this to the same audience who's literally being persecuted by an evil emperor Nero. Nero. So then, since Christ suffered physical pain, since Christ suffered physical pain, you must arm yourselves with the same attitude. That's code for be ready. Everybody got that, right? Be ready. Be ready to suffer too. For if you have suffered physically for Christ, then you have finished with sin. You won't spend the rest of your lives chasing your own desires, but you will be eager to do the will of God instead. You've had enough in the past of the evil things that godless people enjoy. Their immorality and lust, their feasting and drunkenness, their wild parties and their terrible worship of idols. In James chapter 1, starting in verse 2, he says, Dear brothers and sisters, when troubles of any kind come your way, consider it an opportunity for great joy. For you know that when your faith is tested, your endurance has a chance to grow. So let it grow, for when your endurance is fully developed, you will be perfect and complete, needing nothing. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, starting in verse 8. We're pressed on every side by troubles. Does it sound like suffering? But we're not crushed. We're perplexed, but not driven to despair. We are hunted down, but never abandoned by God. We get knocked down, but we are not destroyed. Through suffering, our bodies continue to share in the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be seen in our bodies. And as God's grace, as God's grace reaches more and more people, there will be great thanksgiving. And God will receive more and more glory. That's why we never give up. Though our bodies are dying, our spirits are being renewed every day. For our present troubles are small and won't last very long. They won't last forever. Yet they produce for us a glory that vastly outweighs them and will last forever. So we don't look at the troubles we can see now. We don't look at the red dot at the end of the rope. Rather, we fix our gaze on things that cannot be seen. For the things we see now will soon be gone, but the things we cannot see will last forever. I could go on and on from God's Word. Do you understand the connection between our suffering and God's grace? That's what He's using to drive sin out of our lives? That it's what He's using to help us understand what Jesus had to go through for us? That it's what He's using so we'll understand how much He's offering us now? that it's what he's using to show the rest of the world what it looks like to have the attitude of Jesus? None of that exists without suffering. And you say, well, that's unfair. It shouldn't be that bad. And I'm just telling you what God is saying to us today is that adversity does not mean you've been abandoned. 
And whatever seems unfair now, and whatever seems like it's lasting too long now, will pale in comparison to the white rope. It will look like nothing a thousand years from now. No matter how great the injustice, God will set it right. So don't give up. Don't surrender. Don't stop obeying what Jesus says. No matter how much suffering comes your way, follow Jesus' battle plan. Expect it to come. Remember you're not alone. And focus on what's ahead. And if you'll do that, you will win the battle every single time the deceiver roars like a lion. Will you guys pray with me? In Jesus' name, God, we come to you today and we beg for some healing. For people who are suffering, would you heal them? Would you make it better? For people who are lonely, would you give them comfort your way? For people who have struggled with sin for decades, people who have been stuck and trapped by a habit or an addiction, would you release us from it and give us victory over it? But God, even if you don't, would you give us the faith to keep going, to keep trusting you, to keep following you, to keep declaring that you're good, to keep our eyes fixed on the future and not stuck on our situation in the present. We need your help, God, because our faith is so weak. Would you invade this space right now with your glory? Would you just give people ears to hear, eyes to see, and the courage to live out what you're speaking to them through your word today? Suffering is hard, God, but thank you for your grace that is always sufficient, no matter how bad the suffering is. Thank you for your grace. Would you give everybody in our room today the ability to walk out of the doors today and feel how great your grace is for them. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.